Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. It's great to be together. It's awesome to see some of your faces. I didn't get to talk to you this week, but some of you, I looked out and I was like, I want to spend time with them. I want to spend time with them. And then it was like the Lord said, redeem the time you have together right now. So we're going to do that. And uh, we're going to get into God's Word. And I want to remind you, today is not a Bible study. And so we're going to ask God that we would encounter Him and that He would transform our lives. We've been doing a prayer initiative together as a church. If you were here last week, we had an awesome speaker. Uh, the guy who led me to Jesus was challenging us, talking about prayer and challenging us to pray. And I know many of you took a commitment to pray for 30 minutes a day, every day from now until Easter. How's that going? Not to guilt you, any of you. Maybe it wasn't 30 minutes a day. I'm, give the Lord a hand for your prayer time. That's awesome. Um, I know there was one middle school student that came up after the service and said, can I pray for 15 minutes a day? Yes, that is allowed, just so you know. If anyone else was wondering that question, the main thing is we want to seek the Lord and ask Him to do what only He can do. Because we can do a Bible study together, we can go to church together, we can do some religious stuff, but only God's going to change lives. And really we only want to follow what He's going to do as far as leading us. And so we had an elder retreat last weekend as well, and so I wasn't here, our elders weren't here. And uh, we had a great time. You'll hear more about that next week. But we were confessing sin to one another and praying. And our agenda is not what we did. And so we'll tell you a little bit about what we did. But we felt like the Lord directed. And then we were told later that uh, the speaker actually prayed, God, if you've got a different agenda for him. So the Lord answered that prayer already. I don't know how he's doing to answer some of the other prayers you have. Uh, But let's take all that before the Lord right now and pray that he'd speak to our hearts as we open up the Bible together. Let me pray. Father, thank you. For our church family, thank you for our guests that are here today. Thank you for uh, people that are periodically pop in and out of this, this place, God. You know that you've got everybody here you want here right now in this moment. And I pray we'd redeem this moment. I pray, God, that you would have your hand on our hearts. I pray that we would encounter you as the living God, that we wouldn't walk out of here knowing a new verse, but that we'd know you in a new way, God, that you'd transform our minds, that you'd transform our hearts, that you'd transform our desires, that you'd take things in some people's minds that they know and, and wedge them into their souls. God, give us a passion for you and a desire to know you and a desire to make you known in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you saw from the video, we've been doing this series out of the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is really far into the back of the New Testament, so if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to the the back of your New Testament. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. It comes after the book of Hebrews, after the book of James, is 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible and you want to go get one, we've got some at the back table. You're welcome to take those home with you, by the way, too, if you don't have a Bible, and so you can have that. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 is where we're at today. I hope that you've had a good week as you're turning there in your Bible. I don't know if that's true for everybody. I know at our our church we had a unique week. We welcomed a new pastor. Our youth pastor, Danny Myers, officially started this past Monday. Today, after this service, there's a luncheon. Even if you didn't sign up, you're welcome to come. And so especially if you have a middle school or high school student, we'd love for you to come and get to know Danny, hear some of his plans and vision for what's going on with our youth group. But I remember I was talking to him even the week before that, just knowing that he was coming. And it reminded me of when I first got a job at a church, and I was a pastor, and I was a youth pastor, and I told him that what happens, the first day that I was there, I put my desk together. So I got one of those Walmart desks. Those of you who know my stories, you know that does take a whole day. And I was putting these pieces together and got that all assembled. And I remember it was the second or third day sitting down at my desk and going, now what? Like, what does a youth pastor even do? Like, I know you hang out with kids, but they're all at school right now. So what, like, what do you do? And some of you may have wondered before, like, what do pastors do? Like, I know there's that one guy who stands up on stage and talks for 30 or a little bit more minutes every week. What are the rest of them doing? What does he do with the rest of his week? And that's what I was wondering. I didn't know. So I was in this stage of going, now what? Have you ever been there? 
maybe with a job. You get a new job and you go, now what do I do? Like, I went through the orientation, filled all the HR paperwork, now what do I do? Or you decide you're going to start your own company and you got this idea and you got the dream and you get the website going, you go, now what do I do? Or you get married and you go, all right, now we're married, we had the ceremony, now what happens? Or you have a baby, you bring a baby home. I was talking to a guy yesterday, they just had a new baby, they go to our church and we were talking about it and I, I told him there was a moment about three or four weeks into it, we weren't getting much sleep, things were all different and I looked at my wife and I said, when are we going to get back to normal? All the ladies laughed. And she looked at me like, you're an idiot. Like that was the exact look in her eyes at that moment. And she said, this is the new normal. Now what? Now what do I, this doesn't work. Like not sleeping, all those things. Or if you've ever been to a fancy meal for the first time and no one told you there were going to be that many forks. (laughs) And you sit there and you look at it and you think, when do I grab which one? What do I do now? And many people, that's what it's like in your spiritual journey. You trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, most important decision you ever make in your life. Now what do I do? And a lot of us function like we're at a fancy meal. I'm going to start just kind of looking around, and uh, if this guy grabs that fork, I'm going to grab that fork. And, and so we start to think, this must be what the Christian life is. It must be that I'm supposed to read my Bible. And maybe you heard the message last week, or you've just seen people do it. I pray, you hear prayer talked about, and so I should, I should pray some, and I should go to church. And then you kind of just kind of default, just be like a nice guy, maybe not swear as much as I used to do or, or whatever. And maybe you've done that, and what ends up happening in your soul is you end up asking yourself the question, is there more than this? I mean, I make this this decision, it's supposed to be the most important decision in my life, now what? Like, this has got to be more than this. And the reality is, there is. And that's what the passage talks about today. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 13. Up to this point, there hasn't been a single command in Peter. The first 12 verses are all about what God has done, what God is giving, it's, all, it's what uh, grammarians would call indicatives, all these statements. Here's some truth. You're an exile. You're a foreigner here. It says in verse 1, an elect exile. Here's the overarching theme. This place is not your home. So now what? But I still live in this place. What do I do? doesn't tell you yet. Instead, he tells you what a great salvation you have. You've got a living hope, verse 3. You've got an eternal inheritance that's undefiled, imperishable, unfading. You can have so much joy that even in suffering you rejoice with an inexpressible joy. That's how great the salvation is. So great, angels long to look into it. That's the first 12 verses. Now what? See, we've gotten this truth that I told you in the first week. If we would get this beyond our minds, not just that this place isn't our home like we know that, and I've got a little you know, dollhouse up here, give you a hotel analogy, and you go, now I get it. But it would sink into our hearts. It'd transform everything about how we live. Christians would be different. Unbelievable generosity would be a characteristic of us. Bold faith, inexpressible joy. But how? Look at verse 13. Therefore, in light of all the stuff that was said in the first 12 verses, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here's your first command in the whole book. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I bet if I asked everybody, what do you think the first command is? He's going to tell you what to do. You trust in Christ. It's great salvation. What is I bet 5% maybe would guess this. A lot of people might guess. Read your Bible. Pray. Share your faith. Go to church. But hope? In fact, some people argue this whole passage is about hope. We're going to go, Lord willing, today all the way through verse 21. Verse 13 talks about hope. Verse 21 talks about hope. It's like a sandwich here. Who through him, verse 21, through, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that, here's why all the stuff we talk about today, your faith and hope are in God. We saw hope introduced, the very first thing it said after the greeting in verse 1 and 2. In verse 3, is you have a living hope. 
So what, what does it mean to have this hope? Here's our first point today. There's going to be three of them based on the three commands we're going to look at. First point is this. How we hope determines how we live. What you hope in will dictate the direction of your life. How we hope determines how we live. And the hope that's talked about here, if you've been here for this series so far, you've heard me share this already, but in case you're new, I want to say it again, and repetition's always good for us. The word hope in the Bible is different than the word hope that we oftentimes think of. When Americans say the word hope, we are wishing something in the future would happen. And it could be all kinds of things. It's usually good things. I hope the Eagles win the Super Bowl. A couple, couple fly, eagle fly. One guy told me in the first service, I used this illustration, he said, I was going to stand up, E-A-G. I goes, go for it, you do what you want to do. I'm not an Eagles fan. I'm just tired of New England winning. So I just, that's just kind of thing. Sorry, if you're a Patriots fan, you go, hey, yeah, all right, yeah. Patriots fans are like, this is not the church for me. <laughs> we love you. God loves everyone. Even Tar Heels. We're glad you're here too. Ooh, oh, oh, okay. Some of the Tar Heels are, I hope that we could do yesterday. No, anyway. Wait till March. I hope we do well in March, right? I hope is a wish. It's not a bad thing, but there's no assurance of it. In the New Testament, when you read the word hope, I haven't told you this yet, you could, you could translate it in your minds. Every time you see the word hope, just say this, future faith. Future faith. But you, there's an assurance and a certainty to it. Here's why. Because God's the one that he's promised, all the hope in the New Testament is based on God's promises. And God always keeps his promises. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? Amen. Here's some news. Easter comes at the beginning of April this year. But every Sunday's Easter at Southbridge. Jesus Christ is resurrected. Amen? Amen. He is risen. Steve? That's right. He's still risen. And here's the reality. If he hasn't risen from the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us we are to be most pitied. We are without hope. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, because here's the reality, today's message really isn't for you. And I know there are people that come to our church every week, and some of you have even just directly told me you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. This message isn't for you. And so don't go apply this and say, how do I have this kind of, how do I do this? Here's the reality. You need to place your faith in Jesus. And the one thing you need, if you have doubts, I'm not sure about creation. I'm not sure if the Bible is God's word. Here's the doubt you need to figure out. Has Jesus Christ raised from the dead? If he has, he's not just a man. And I would proclaim to you that he's offering you life. And you need to receive that life. And that's the only message you need to hear today. But those of you who have received that hope. Those of you who have received that gift, those of you who have received that life, your hope should be different, not just because the word hope is different in the New Testament than what we think about in America, because the kind of, the manner of hope that we would have. Notice what the passage says. It says, set your hope fully, it's a fixed hope, on, and it says, the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ's second coming. But we're not going to talk about the object of hope right now. We'll get to that in just a moment. Just the fact that it's a fixed hope. Because most of us, one of our problems is we, have, we might hope in the resurrection of Jesus, usually when there's a lot of stress. <laughs> like there's some due date that's coming. Jesus, would you just come back? My hope is in you. Or whatever. Marriage isn't going well. Life's not going we wanted. We just start thinking about what that could be like. But then we kind of waver. And sometimes we hope in that, and sometimes we hope in our 401k. Or sometimes we hope in life circumstances. Sometimes we hope in our kids' future. Sometimes we hope in... All kinds of security things that we set up. There's all kinds of stuff that we hope in. And it's a wavering hope then when we go back and forth. This says to have your hope set fully, that's fixated 100% on the grace to be revealed in Jesus Christ. But think about who's saying this. This book's called Peter for a reason. It's written by a guy named Peter. We meet him in the Gospels. If ever there was a guy who's a picture of wavering, it's Peter. 
So Peter, here's this guy, and we, if you saw the call to worship today, and it talked about come, and it talked about all the different circumstances, people are going, come. That's a command that Jesus gives oftentimes, come. There was one time when he gave that command to Peter, and it wasn't to come follow me when to drop your nets, although he did that, but he went back. That's wavering. It's when there was a storm that was happening, and he was in a boat with 11 of his closest buddies, and Jesus comes walking on water, only if you read the New Testament, it doesn't say that they knew that it was Jesus. They said they thought it was a ghost. And so the waves are crashing, there's this storm, they think they're going to die, and it says that these guys are screaming out like junior high little girls, it's in the Bible, go read it. (laughs) But Peter stands up and he says, he must have saw the silhouette and thought, that looks kind of like Jesus. He says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come. Which I always think to myself, what if it wasn't Jesus? What if it had been like a ghost, like they thought it was a phantom that was out on the (laughs) water? Okay, come, (laughs) and watch this guy drop right to the bottom. But here's this guy, he stands on the edge of this boat. No one else has ever done this. The guys in the boat aren't doing this. The waves are crashing. Wind's blowing across his face. And he's trying to get his eyes fixated on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. He says, if it's you, tell me to come. And he gets that one word command, that if you're not a believer, that's the command Jesus has given to you today. Anybody who's thirsty, come. You weary and burdened, come. He says it all throughout the New Testament. You want life, eternal life, come. Living water, come. And he says to Peter, when he's standing on the edge of that boat, come. And so many times we give Peter a hard time for sinking, but if you read the passage, he walked on water. I don't know if it was two or three feet, 20 feet, I don't know how far, but for some period of time he walked on water, as long as he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And then he looked at the waves. You know what happened? He wavered. And he sunk, and then Jesus rebukes him. Why did you doubt? You were doing something no human's ever done. And he doubted me. And then you see it in his life, all throughout his life. At one moment, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Hey, that came from the Father. Hey, you can't, you got to quit talking about death, Jesus. Moments later, get behind me, Satan. Same guy. He wavered. I'll never deny you, denies before a servant girl. He wavers. And so how can, is it hypocritical for him to say, have your hope set fully on the revelation at the time of Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you no because it's like this. Peter's now, it's about 30 years since the resurrection of Jesus. He's learned a lot. You read the book of Acts. He's like an elder statesman. Imagine like a retired army general. And so he's got the scars and he's got the medals and the hearts and bars and all kinds of stuff. And he's looking at some punk recruit kid coming into the military. And he's telling them all the life lessons. So imagine you at wherever you're at, and this won't work for those of you who are still in middle school, still in high school, but everybody who's beyond that, even in college, imagine if you could speak to high school you. What would you say? I bet you there were things that you thought were important when you were in high school that you now look back at and go, that didn't matter. Some dance that was coming was so important. What you wore, do you remember what you wore? Who went? Do you remember who went? Some test that you did, who you're, that girl that broke up with you. I was thinking about it for myself, thinking about how much I cared about what other people thought of me. I don't even talk to most of those people. Who cares? So, you know, if I talk back, I'd say, you know, don't worry about that stuff. And here's Peter. He's like this guy with gray hair now looking at high school kids and going, let me tell you what really matters. Set your hope, don't, don't make the mistakes I made. You don't have to have some of the scars that I have. Set your hope fully, fully on. Look at what it is, though. It's interesting. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. And those of you who know your Bible, you know there's all these things that he could say here. He doesn't. He doesn't talk about the phenomenon. Set your hope fully on wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all the stuff from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Don't say that. He doesn't talk about the rewards. He's not, you know, he's going to motivate people to live a certain way. How you hope determines how you live. Why doesn't he talk about rewards? 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, eternal rewards. They're a thing, they're a motivator. Why doesn't he say that? He doesn't. The glory of Christ, when Christ comes back, the trumpet sound, the blink of an eye. Why doesn't he talk about that? He doesn't. What does he say? Look what he says. Fully on the grace. Grace is something you don't deserve. It's not your rewards. It's not about how phenomenal it is. It's this grace, but it's a future grace. You haven't experienced it yet. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the second coming of Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? How does that happen? Most of us don't do that. Most of us waver. Most of us are like Peter. It's like one moment. Sure, I'm thinking about the second coming of Jesus, thinking about this. Hope I get a raise. Where's your hope? Thinking about the second coming of Jesus, eternal, we went to church, and we know we're supposed to be focused on that. Then my hope's in what? What is it for you? You fill in the blanks. All kinds of stuff. Your education, your status, what do the people think, what your goals are. Hope it, if I build up the security, then I'll have. And we waver. We say, no, you set your hope fully. Have this fully set hope. Because how you hope determines how you live. But the problem is when we waver to these other things, almost all the other things are temporary, which are really meaningless. Which reminds me, last week, uh, my wife celebrated her 40th or 25th, I can't remember, her birthday. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I like that, huh? Score some points. Listen to the recording, babe. Um, and we had a trip planned. We went out to California. We were going to San Francisco. I'd never been there before. And one of the things we were going to do is go see Alcatraz. I don't know if you're familiar with Alcatraz or not. But it's this island about a mile off the San Francisco shore. And there's a prison there, famous prison there, The Rock. Some of you have maybe seen the movie Escape from Alcatraz. And I didn't know a lot about it. And so I started doing a little reading on our way out there and realized that there's debates about whether anyone's ever escaped and what ends up happening is that the prisoners believe there was three guys that dug a hole through the wall, got out of the place. It was like Shawshank Redemption. They used spoons, dug a hole through the wall, climbed through, through the drainage pipe, went out. And the people that are on the prison say, no, they were eaten by sharks. <laughs> and the guys that have been there say, no, they made it to South America. They want hope. We don't know what happened to the story. The guys didn't report back because <laughs> they're not idiots. Or they're dead, one of the two. But we land on this ferry boat on this island, and when we get there, there's a tour guide, and he starts telling us all about it, telling us the lore, the mystique, like some of the stories that were there. And they say, hey, you can go up into this room and watch a, the History Channel at a 15- or 20-minute deal, or you can go get this, this headset and tour through the prison. And we went and got the headset, and we're walking through, and on the headset, they actually have ex-police you know, officers, security guards that were there talking about what it was like. Prisoners that actually were in, the, in there at the time, talking about what it was like. There was actually a guy there at, the, at Alcatraz who had stayed in Alcatraz, as a, not like as a guest. He was imprisoned in Alcatraz and uh, was selling a book, though. I mean, that just kind of happened to be what he was doing, but he was there. And uh, you heard all these different people telling the stories of what it was like. And so you walk up to this cell. It's five feet wide, nine feet deep, and it's a pretty hopeless situation. And you hear the guys that were prisoners talking about how it was actually torture that they were only a mile away from San Francisco because they could hear people in their freedom and what was happening there. And he talked about what it was like when those doors first slammed shut. And they tour you around. You go to the cafeteria, you go to the library, you go to all these different places, the visitation area, and different people talk about how they never got visitors or one visitor came. And, and then they start telling stories about the things that they would do to pass the time, what they would put their hope in. And they made up a game of bridge that they would play, and they talked about they, they loved it so much they would stay out in the courtyard when it was super cold for hours at a time, and the guards would let them do it because the guards knew if they were doing that, they weren't thinking about trying to escape. They had their hope in something else. The most impactful moment for me was when we went to solitary confinement. 
And we walk into this section, no toilet in the room, it's even worse than the other five by nine area. And when you close the door, total darkness. And what happens is they got these pictures of some of their more famous prisoners that were there, like Al Capone, Scarface, different people that were there, kidnappers, murderers that were there. And on the, oh, the headset come some of the voices of those guys, and they start telling how they would make it through solitary confinement. And one guy said he'd pop a button off of his uniform when he knew that he was going to solitary. And when they closed the door, he'd toss the button up in the air, and then he'd spend his time looking for the button. That's how he was spending his life. And I thought, how hopeless is that? But then you back up and think about, what do we do? He's just trying to pass hours in solitary so he can pass years in prison. And so most of our hopes are in what? Say it's your career. You got 30 years? How many? 40? I don't know. Argue with me about it. It's fine in your head. You hope in your legacy? Let me promise you something about your legacy. You will be forgotten in two or three generations. I don't care what you accomplish. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm just telling you it's temporary. It's all temporary. 200 years maybe? Like our lives will be remembered for? If you do something significant. So you can look back and go chasing a button. I wonder what it looks like from God's perspective, some of the things we put our hope in. What's your hope in? You see, the Bible actually says that those things are no hope because we're putting our hope in the same things that other people in this culture put their hope in when we hope in those things. Let me read you what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, Remember that you were at one time before you knew Jesus Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No, I was chasing a button. You think you had, that's empty hope. It's no hope. Separate from God. And so the things that we hope in, separate from God, the temporary things that we go after, are empty. So then the command, the first command after this glorious truth of these 12 verses is hope. Because how you hope determines how you live. So how do we hope like this is the question. Well, that's where you back up and look at the verse. Don't just let me come up with ideas and thoughts I had while I was in my office this week. Look what the passage says. The answers are always in God's word. There's some participles here. What participles do is participles help the verb complete the action. So what's the command? The command is hope. Set your hope fully. How do we do that? Back up. By preparing your minds, by being sober-minded. So what does it mean to prepare your minds? Prepare your minds very literally can be translated, gird your loins. (laughs) But they don't translate it that way because nobody talks that way, right? (laughs) Nick Foles is not like, hey, Steve, Gird your loins. Get ready over there. The guy over at Gird your loins is like, what page is that in the playbook? What are you talking about? Gird your loins. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? And, and the reality is, the reason why that word's used is because in that time, people often wore robes. Even men would wear long robes. A dignified way to live. And not co- you want your legs covered, but you want flowing. It's hot. They didn't have all the air conditioning like we have. And they wear a belt. But when it was time for activity, manual labor, battle, which is probably what this is referring to, You'd gird your loins, which means you'd grab the robe, you'd tuck it into a belt, and you'd tighten the belt. The word for gird your loins is used another place in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, Paul's talking about spiritual battle, which is probably what's being alluded to here. And he says this, I'm going to read it to you, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. I'm going to read from the King James because they actually use the word girt. (laughs) I thought, who talks like that? King James did, apparently. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. He probably said it like that, too. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. So 
That tells us something also about what it means to gird your loins, what it means to prepare your minds, because you're doing it for action. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. You don't just passively start hoping. You've got to get ready for this so that you can take action. What is the action? Well, it has to do with the truth. What's the belt that you have? It's truth. And so what is the truth that we need to focus on? Probably truth that's related to grace. So what do we know to be true about grace? Because the grace that we're supposed to be hoping in, we haven't experienced yet. But it's supposed to be so amazing that it would consume all of our attention. So amazing that all of our hope will be set fully and completely on what's going to be received. Not just your eternal rewards. What's going to be received by grace when Christ reveals himself when you're, if you're a believer in Jesus. Because you've got such an incredible salvation, angels long to look into it. You're going to have an eternal inheritance. So this should consume our hope. How we hope determines how we live. Prepare your minds for this. How? With the truth. The truth of God's word. And I'll challenge you another way because you think about what are the loose ends of your, your mind? What, what happens? Distractions. That's what happens. We get distracted by other stuff. The tyranny of the urgent in our life. Things that aren't important. Chasing buttons. Temptations. I guarantee everybody here in the last 24 hours has been tempted by something. A thought, an action, whatever it is. Temptation. Gird your mind. Gird, gird, it, gird your mind together. Prepare your mind because those things are coming. Temptations, distractions, doubts. So how do you battle that stuff? Well, you, you have to know the truth Specifically here, probably the truth of God's grace. And one of the ways that God does that is through other people, too. And so we're going to talk more about that next week when we get to the next part of this passage. But today, a practical application of today's message, we're having the group expo, small group expo, out in the hallway. And so you need people in your life that speak truth into your life. So here's the reality. Some of you have been in group before. You're not in group anymore. This is a great opportunity for you to connect. Some of you are new to our church. It's a great opportunity for you to get to know more people in our church. Some of you are in group. And all it is is a one-hour meeting. That's not the intention, just so you know. I'm not just trying to give you another thing to do. The goal is that you would get so involved in each other's lives that you'd see each other's blind spots. You'd be able to speak truth to one another. That's one of the ways you guard your mind. That's one of the ways you prepare your minds. It says here, prepare your minds. That's probably battle language, and you think about all the preparation a soldier goes through. Some of you have been soldiers, some of you have served. Thank you so much for your service. Some of you have seen, maybe you've seen like a Netflix documentary or something, some of the training. Every once in a while you see like a motivational speech. Someone about a year ago, or a guy was talking about how he drowned as a Navy SEAL, and they brought him back. And then this commanding officer said, now you know what it's like to die, so you know you can push yourself right up to that point. Pretty intense training. Well, we're, that's temporary battle, by the way. The battle we're in, more important than that. It's eternal battle. Battle over your mind, over your heart, over your soul. Prepare yourselves. I read this week that soldiers, to, to outfit a soldier, and the most recent stat they had was 2007. They thought that it was going to grow. And they said that to outfit a, a common soldier, not just like, not like some robocop, like some common like foot soldier, $17,500. Special knives that can cut seat belts, goggles that they wear. And so they don't come out. You talk about girding your loins. It's not like when it's time to battle, you want your buddy that's in your squadron coming out going, I got my bathrobe on, we're cool. And then the next thing says this, be sober-minded. Let me tell you something to help you remember this passage. Drunk guys in bathrobes are bad soldiers. <laughs> that doesn't work. Your buddy's still hung over from the night before, and the battle starts, and he comes out in his bathrobe. Some of you served in the military are like, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. But Peter's saying that's, that's the temptation for us as Christians. What does it mean to be sober-minded? To, to be drunk means you're intoxicated, you're controlled by something else, you've become 
anesthetized. It's like an anesthesia. You become numb, numb to the things of God. How does that happen? Because of the things of this world. We become numb to the things of God because of the things that are going on in this world. I read this week also that the average person in America spends five hours a day watching television. That doesn't count all the screen time we have. Facebook, not included in that. Netflix, not included. Whoa, some of you are like, oh, what? Four hours of live TV, one hour of DVR. They estimate when you factor in all the other stuff, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, all that other stuff, and ESPN, whatever. Just so you know, ESPN, I've watched it enough. It's the same thing every 30 minutes. They keep doing it. But when you factor all that in, they say over 10 hours a day people spend on screens. Let me tell you something what that means. I'm trying to you know, give you some kind of guilt trip here, but I want you to know this. We are being discipled by our culture. All of us. Me. Not just all you out there, all you naughty people out there. We are being discipled by our culture. And what happens with that is we become numb to the way that God's working in our lives. Wonder, God, why don't you do what God still works the way he did in the Bible, just so you know. That might be news to some of you. You want to talk about that? I'd love to talk with you about that. He still does miracles. He's still present. He's working in your life. Some of us probably pray to God, God, would you just do something in my life? And he's up there going, are you kidding? What he's doing all around us, the way he's working, the way he's moving people, the relationships that are happening, all the stuff that's going on. He's going, I am working. Wake up! That's what Peter's saying here. Be sober-minded. Wake up. Some of us need it like a buddy, and like some of you are going, oh, I don't even know what he's talking about. Like you've you got a hangover the next morning, somebody dumps a cold bucket of water on your face. Somebody needs to go, hey, smack you around. Wait, okay, get with the program here. Some of us, if we got pulled over, spiritually speaking, we would fail the breathalyzer test because we've been drunken with this world. And we have the same values, the same hopes, the same lives. But we believe different things in our heads. Those are the people that made some decision and go, I should probably go to church, read my Bible, pray. He tells us here different stuff. Therefore, first thing, how we hope determines how we live. Second thing is this. You want to make a difference? You've got to be different. You want to make a difference in this world, which is God's mission for us, sending us into this world to make disciples. You want to make a difference? You've got to be different than this world. And so look at the command that's next here. It's given all throughout the Bible, but verses 14 through 16 say it like this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be just like this place. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now here's the reality. Holiness gets a bad rap. And most of, the, most of our experiences that have been in church for any amount of time, most of you, when I say holy, probably think of things not to do. I was reading one guy this week, and he had a list. He said, I just wrote down all the words that came to my mind as soon as I said holy. And he wrote down, uh, no fun, no sex, cold showers, clean fingernails. When I read clean fingernails, I thought, I don't think I would have thought clean fingernails in like 10,000 years. So I don't know what pops into your mind. When he, I also thought, why not holy sex? Why didn't he say that? You're kind of critiquing his thought process. What's yours? What would yours be? What do you think of when I say holy? And a lot of us, depending on your background, think of things you're not supposed to do. Don't go to these places. Don't drink these liquids. Don't say this. Don't. Pause on that for a second. And let's see what the Bible actually says. Because I think that some of the things I might say next from the Bible, not just my thoughts, might reshape the way you think about holiness. And so you go to this passage, first of all, you need to know this. This is true for the Bible as a whole. Verse 13 starts with therefore, right? So everything that's coming in verses 13 through 21 is tied to that word in verse 13, therefore, which ties back to verses 1 through 12. Remember I told you there's not a single command in verses 1 through 12. 
Here's something you need to realize. Often, throughout the whole Bible, it's indicative then imperative. What that means? Statements about truth before you get commands. So here's what that means. That God's demands of your life, and they are demands, that's what commands are. God's demands of your life are grounded in his grace. Because first you get the truth about who he is, what he's done, what he's given, and then he's telling you, here's how you naturally should respond. So always the commands of God are rooted in the truth of God. So first he tells you the truth, indicative, then he gives you the imperative, command. So God's grace is the foundation for the commands that he gives you. And so before he ever tells us to be holy, it's not like this dry statement, which is oftentimes what many of us have experienced, this dry, hey, good people, don't do this, do these. Who says? Where's that in the Bible? The Bible's authoritative. And so when the Bible talks about holiness, it actually first tells us about his grace. And so based on the grace that he's given, here's the reality. You should be different. But it's not just that. Notice here, it doesn't say that you're supposed to do holiness. It says you're supposed to be holy. Holiness is actually part of our identity. So we love talking about our identity in Christ, being that we're sons of God, that that we've got an inheritance from God, that we get a hope from God. All those things shape our identity, but also our holiness. Here's why. Because our Father's different. We should be different. So you don't go do holiness. The application to this point is not going to be me to tell you, do these six things, don't do these six things. Think this way, don't think this way. No, God. That's the application. Because the closer you get to him, the more you're going to be like him, and you're going to be transformed by him. He's different. That's your identity. You're his. Notice in the passage, if you go back, the very first words of verse 14 says, as obedient children, because of your identity, your relationship with him. So holiness is not legalism any more than me loving my wife is legalism. If I go to my wife because I read some book that had 365 rules on what it is to be a good husband, and I write her a note on Tuesday, and I take her flowers on Wednesday because the book's set, and then I and fill in the blank with all the other stuff, that's obligatory. That is legalism. But if I give my wife a no because I love her, who's going to call that legalism? That's relationship. What's being talked about here in this passage is relationship. What you see right after in verse 16, after it says, be holy for I am holy, verse 17, do you think it's coincidence? It says, and if you call on him as father. If you think it's coincidence, then look it up in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, when it talks about be holy because God is holy. And then the next command is, honor your mother and father. It's a coincidence. This is rooted in relationship. It's part of our identity, and all of God's demands are grounded in His grace. That might shape some of your past experiences to realize what's actually being talked about with holiness. With that in mind, what is holiness? Let's define it. Some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. You've never been to church before or whatever. A lot of times people will define it as moral purity. That is true, but it's a secondary definition. Like if you would look up um, anything on dictionary.com, Webster's, wherever you go, and you'll have different definitions. It's not going to be the first definition. It's not moral purity. It's a secondary definition. First definition is that God's transcendent. He's different. He's majestic. That's what it means. Set apart. And because he's different and he's your father, you should be different. That's what's being said here in this passage of Scripture. Be different. And that's wired into each one of us as a desire for that, just so you know. As much as we're forced into a mold to conform and be like everybody else, that's the pressure of this, this world. In fact, the way that Peter defines holiness here is the very first thing he says. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't chase buttons. Don't hope in the stuff that everybody else is hoping in. Don't be shaped by this place. That word conformed means to be molded. 
I am not a baker, but my wife gave me permission to grab this for an illustration today. I thought this was for muffins. She told me it's bunk cakes. Whatever. <laughs> and I said, hey, you pour it in, and the bottom looks like it. She goes, that's the top. Okay, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do know this. If you pour the baking stuff in here, all six of these things are going to look exactly the same because they've been poured into a mold. What's being commanded here when it says do not be conformed is don't fit the mold that society is trying to force you into, which is really hard to do when you're getting discipled 10 hours a day by them. Instead, it's saying be like your father, which is your identity. Don't be conformed. Romans says it like this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Peter says it like this. Have a sober mind. Prepare your minds to set your hope. What if holiness wasn't about the do's and don'ts that we have and was actually intimately tied to the hope that we have? And it happened because of the security that we have in our identity in Christ and that our hope would be fully set on him. That would transform how we love, how we think, how we live. Unbelievable generosity because where hope is there, we can give away anything here. Time, talent, money, doesn't matter. It's all temporary stuff here. Inexpressible joy, no matter what you do to me, I get to go be with Jesus. Inexpressible joy. Bold faith, same motivator. No matter what happens here, I get to go be with Jesus. But our hope, hope determines how we live. Got to be different. Saying don't be conformed. You want to make a difference? You got to be different. So are we. Here's the reality. All of you want to be different. All of us want to be different. Marketers know this. Apple's got it down like crazy. Remember their Think Different campaign? If you remember the commercial they did uh, called The Crazy Ones, originally Steve Jobs read it, then Richard Dreyfuss read it. I don't know if you guys know this, some of you Apple people uh, that are out here, but they've got a commercial. They showed all these world changers, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lennon, uh, Muhammad Ali, people who shape culture. And talk about, here's to the crazy ones. And he goes on to basically say, without using their phrase, they don't use their phrase, think different. People who thought different. These uh, square pegs, you can't put them in round holes. They don't like the rules, it goes on to say. But at the end, it says this. There are some people that are crazy enough to think they could change the world. They're the ones that do. And then the, what they're selling you is this. If you buy an apple, you'll be different. Here's the irony of it. And we want everyone to buy one. <laughs> Fit the mold. Yeah. It's actually a contradiction. But they know they're tapping into something there. We all have a desire to be different. The reality is we all are different. The Bible tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us is unique. What the world wants to do is shape us into its mold. Why is it that we're open to everything as long as you conform to everything I believe? This is trying to shape you into a mold. And God's saying, no, no, no. You want to make a difference? You've got to be different. It's true. Who changed the world by being like everybody else? Nobody. And what he's saying here is this. You're supposed to be different. The question is, are we? I read an article in the Huffington Post. You can look it up. Those of you who take notes, maybe jot that down. In the Huffington Post this week, it was talking about what's an evangelical? What does an evangelical look like? And they said there was a time, I think it was probably in the 90s, they didn't say that in the article, when you knew an evangelical because they wore a What Would Jesus Do bracelet. If they were hanging out at the country club, they were reading a Left Behind book that they might leave behind so someone would hopefully not experience the rapture. They would give a track instead of a tip at a restaurant, a little gospel track. They voted for sure. They voted Republican. And so that's no longer what it is. And so I want to read to you what the article said so you don't think I'm making this up. So the evangelicals were a stereotype. They were too political, too capitalistic, too apathetic about long-term health of the earth and her inhabitants. They believed in Noah's Ark and talking serpents, but not global warming. They preached the gospel of grace, 
but rarely acted graceful in their dealings with gay people, welfare recipients, or liberals. They mourn the killing of innocent lives from abortion, but seem hardly to notice the millions of lives lost every year due to war, genocide, disease, or malnutrition. Article goes on to say we've changed. Then says this, we're no longer anti-cultural, anti-intellectual, right-wing, hypocritical, bigoted, legalistic, red state Jesus freaks. Oh, that's such a great compliment. Thank you. I'm kidding. And it talks about how now we're open to dialogue about things, that we get involved in social causes. But then do you know what the article says? You can't tell them apart from anybody else. They're involved in social causes, and so are atheists. And what's the difference is the question. The reality is it's not wrong for you to be involved in a social cause, but why? If your hope is on the same things that everybody else is hoping in, it'll be no different. Just because you claim to believe you baptize your wishes and hopes with Jesus, who's not the Jesus of the Bible, one you've made up, who does all the things you want him to do, and then you get really mad at him when he doesn't, that's not Christian. That's an American version of Christianity. We've shaped into the American dream's mold. We've been conformed. And he's saying here, you've got to be different. So what does it look like to be different? What if? It's intimately tied to how we hope. And that's why Peter lays it out like this. First command, hope. How we hope determines how we live. Be holy. You want to make a difference? You've got to be different. And so let's be different for a minute, and I'm going to read you the next command. And I, I can almost promise you everyone here is not going to like this command. That probably a high percentage of you, even that claim that the Bible is authoritative in your life, that you believe that Bible is God's word, I bet you a high percentage of you will disagree with this, at least in your spirit you'll want to. But let me challenge you with this before I read it. You want to grow spiritually? You don't just need to be reminded of things you already know. You need to learn new things. And here's, here, I'm going to tell you the point, and then I'm going to read the verse. The point is this. You need to fear your heavenly Father. You need to fear your heavenly Father. Let me pause pastorally for a moment and say this. Some of you had bad fathers, and you feared them. That's not what I'm talking about here. Let me read the passage. Verse 17. Verse 16 is about being holy. Verse 17 says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, so he's father and judge impartially, according to each one's deeds. He's talking to believers here. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So while you're foreigners, you wonder, now what? So I'm a foreigner, this isn't my place. Now what? Here's one of the what's. Fear God. And some of you might know your Bible and you might think, but the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. And, and oftentimes you see the examples in the scripture and in my own life that fear is the thing that stops me from functioning in faith. Uh-huh. You also see that the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And so what you end up sometimes hearing from pastors that I'm not going to do today, because I, I don't think it's helpful, is that pastors, knowing how people respond in their hearts to a command like this, will say, well, fear means awe. Fear means reverence or respect. And what they're trying to do, a lot of times pastorally, they're trying to do what I did before we started this point and saying, hey, some of you are terrified of your father because he was abusive or he was a jerk or whatever the thing was. That's not what's being talked about either. What's being talked about here is that he's altogether different than any being you've ever encountered. He's not your homeboy, he's not your buddy. But it's not just awe and reverence. You should be afraid. Do you know what you should be afraid of? Look at the context of the passage. You should be afraid that you claim to hope in Christ alone, but that you've been conformed to this world and your life's going to prove when you stand at judgment, you didn't really believe that. That should be your fear. Because he is a, look at what it says here, an impartial judge. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? I never knew you. Depart from me. We're all going to be judged. 
And a judge has power. A lot of times we talk about judgment in church. It's like, oh, we shouldn't judge. A speck of dust in this eye. And who am I to judge? And we all this like, stuff that gets floated around about judgment. He is a holy and righteous judge. His judgments are always right. He is sovereign and powerful. You want a picture of the power of a judge? Just look at the news this week. See the Larry Nasser case? It was on the news over and over again, almost every news outlet. doesn't matter if it was sports, what kind of news it was. There's this doctor, Larry Nasser, is a USA Gymnastics doctor, Michigan State sports doctor, and was sexually abusing girls. Now, I know that our audience could be, I'm going to be trying to say some things that go over people's head, but this is serious stuff. The judge at the end of the whole case, after 156 victims slash survivors gave impact statements about what had happened to them, reads a sentence to this guy. He's already been convicted of 60 years in prison for child pornography. So he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail already. She sentences him to 40 years in jail. So I do that just in case, because God's gracious. Maybe you'll survive the 60 years. Maybe you'll survive the 40 years. But I'm going to send a message to the parole. And if you hit the 40-year mark, it extends to 175 years. And then she says this statement. You can go watch it online. I've just signed your death warrant. When I heard that, I thought, whoa. That is a lot of authority for one human. But she has it. See how much power God has? Don't fear him who can kill you. Fear him who can throw you into hell more than 175 years. We should have a fear. It's not a terror, like he's going to abuse us. No, he's a gracious God. But it's not just awe and respect either. He's different, altogether different, therefore we should treat him differently. However, the fear should be that we claim to have hope, and we might know some stuff in our minds. But when you look at our lives, how's he going to judge? What does it say? Don't let me just say this to you. He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. While you're foreigners here, I've got a plan for you. And then he talks about redemption. He's not trying to put doubt in them. He just wants them to sober up, to be alert. It says verse 18, the first word, knowing. Knowing that you were ransomed. Do you know that you were ransomed? knowing that you were ransomed. What does ransom mean? Ransom means there was a price paid for your freedom. Freedom from what? Look what it says next. Don't just say sin. Don't just say bondage. Ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things. You weren't ransomed with perishable things. You were ransomed with eternal things. Not perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope's the key to the whole thing here. What's your hope in? Do you realize the grace that has been given to you? Because that's what he's just talked about here with his ransom language. Have you been wrecked by your forgiveness? Because once you realize what you've been forgiven, you should never be the same. I'm not saying you don't grow past that moment, but that should change. That should be a defining, changing moment forever. What changes you? Have you just been changed by things of this world? Have you been changed by your redemption? Listen to this. One of the, one of the young gals that was abused by that doctor gave a statement. All of 156 of them gave a statement. One of them I'm going to share with you. She was the last one to go. I'm going to read you a portion of it. It's pretty long, but the portion I'm going to read, she direct, she's a directly addressing her abuser. She says this, Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, early on in the trial, he was carrying a Bible to court. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. 
as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today, talking about a sin that was put on display. If the Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you've damaged hundreds, and the Bible does say that, by the way. It's one of those statements that we oftentimes, when we're forming Jesus into our own mold, we don't like to talk about. It says this, though. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Then she says, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it'll be there for you. Then she says to her abuser, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Do you realize the weight of your sin? The ransom that was paid for you? That should wreck you. And if you haven't experienced that, there should be terror because you're going to experience the wrath of God because what he's ransoming you from, futile ways of this world so you wouldn't live that way, but he's actually saving you from his own wrath. He is the judge and the executioner. And he's got the power to throw you into hell. But if you've been redeemed, you've got a new, verse 13, verse 21, verse 3, hope. You should hope different, which means you live different. And different people make a difference in the world. One of the differences is we fear our Father. So what do we do with a message like this? What do we do? Well, the answer is you've got to do the things that were said in the passage. Have a sober mind. Wake up! Some of us need to spend some time in repentance. Some of us, we've got to be alert to the things that are happening, be prepared for what's happening. So some of you, application for today's message is going to be go out in the hallway and get in a group and then get involved in some relationships with people who believe the same stuff as you do that you might not know. And you might like to golf and they might like to play Yahtzee. I don't know. But you both love Jesus. And so you can make it work because you're on the same mission and you're supposed to be different than this place. And they see blind spots in your life you don't see. And they're going to point you to the truth of God's word about God's grace. We've experienced an incredible grace. There's an amazing grace yet to come. You hope in that.